This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank and their Smart Start Bank account for 11 to 15 year olds. When I was growing up, my parents would always tell us that money didn't grow on trees and if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. But to be honest, I never really understood what these old sayings meant or what they were trying to teach me. And I think like with lots of life skills, these things are just so much easier to learn from a young age. And this is definitely something I think about now with my own children. And I can see it in my niece because since she got her Lloyds Bank Smart Start account, she has become somewhat of a saving superstar. She's already learning how to manage her money and learning these habits, which are going to make her adult life so much easier. She's also so excited about using it too, which is brilliant. They get their own card, they get a savings account and a spending account. It's just such a good idea and something that you can do as a parent that's going to help them flourish in the future. It's so clever. It's so good for their confidence. And it's just something that I wish genuinely had been around when I was that age. I think as parents, we all know we have a lot of plates in the air. And even with the best intentions, we just don't have the time to teach our children everything that we'd like to. And sometimes that means important conversations get rushed or brushed over. So I really am excited to be working with Lloyds on this campaign because it's all focused on building financial confidence in children. To be eligible, parents and guardians need to have an existing Club Lloyds current account and be registered for internet banking. To find out more, head to lloydsbank.com forward slash smart start. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Well, this is very exciting. We are back. If you've been listening to Desert Island Dishes for a while, thank you for sticking with us. It's so great to have you with us. And if you're new here, and there are a lot of new listeners who've recently joined us, hello and welcome. We have some amazing guests lined up for you and are just so excited to get going and get back into our weekly routine and hope very much we will get back to being part of your weekly routine, which honestly that's the best bit, hearing from you all that you look forward to a new episode, you miss us when we're gone and that we're part of your week. I mean, really, it's just so great. Desert Island Dishes has got big plans this year. There are so many exciting things in the pipeline, which we will be sharing with you soon. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter on the website to make sure you're amongst the first to know. We got lots of new reviews from all over the world, which is always appreciated and just amazing to see where you're all listening from. I thought we would start reading out a couple of the best ones each week. So we're going to do that at the end of the episode. So do stick around if you want the chance to hear your review read out loud. I think that's all the admin for now, other than to say, I love bringing this podcast to you each week and... That is made possible this season by our brilliant sponsor, Lloyds Bank. So thank you very much to them. 
And now on with the episode. Enjoy. My guest today is Jack Savaretti. Jack is one of the UK's most successful singer-songwriters, described in pretty much every interview I came across as both extremely talented and also very charming. Perhaps it is this combination that has led to Jack's stellar career. He's collaborated with the likes of Kylie Minogue, Bob Dylan and Nile Rodgers and performed to a sold-out Wembley Arena. Jack had an international upbringing with an Italian father and a German-Polish mother, moving from London to Switzerland and spending idyllic childhood summers in Portofino, Italy, where his father's family come from. After falling in love with music at the age of 15, it was a somewhat slow-burning rise to fame for Jack as a musician. He toured the UK for several years, quietly growing his fan base, and it was his sixth album, Singing to Strangers, that finally hit the number one spot. His most recent record, the gorgeous, sun-soaked, feel-good and star-studded Europeana, inspired by his European upbringing and life, was also a chart-topper and arguably his best work to date. When asked to rate his satisfaction with life so far out of 10, Jack responded, I was born on the 10th day of the 10th month in the 10th hour. I think my life is beautiful and it's been a 10 out of 10 since the beginning. In the words of Richard Ashcroft, I'm a lucky man. Welcome, Jack. Hi, I forgot about that quote. <laughs> that leaves me with a lot of sort of things to live up to. But yeah, I think I have been a very lucky man. Thank you for having me too. Such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. So I heard that your long-term ambition in life is to live out your days on a desert island. So this is kind of perfect. It is. This comes from my father. My father has always kind of brought me up with this dream. I think it was his dream that I've kind of inherited. For him, success was being able to find his place on a desert island one day. He did experiment with a few places, and we've ended up actually having a house, not on a desert island, but as remote as you can get really on the Mediterranean, a beautiful island in Formentera, which is literally what drives me all year round because I go to spend a month there every year, and that is literally the sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Not that my life is dark, like covered in the darkness of a tunnel, but it's something that I sort of strive towards every year, is finding myself on a desert island for some time. Just heaven. And would you be okay being on the desert island on your own? Like, are you good in your own company, or is that something that frightens you? I'm good in my own company, but I'm very codependent. I judge myself through the eyes of others. (laughs) And I also just love people. I like flaws and all. I like the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I would rather spend it with people. Even if I didn't know those people, I just would rather be around people that I get to sort of explore. Yeah, that's an understandable explanation. (laughs) (laughs) As I said in the introduction, you were born in London, in Fulham, but you spent summers in Italy and also spent a lot of your childhood in Switzerland, the Italian part of Switzerland. By all accounts, it sounds like your grandmother was a wonderful cook and mealtimes were a really special time for you growing up. So I'm very excited to hear your first desert island dish. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. The dish that reminds me of my childhood is something connected to my grandmother, but it's connected more to Portofino. And it's lasagna al pesto, which is a quintessentially typical thing you get in Portofino. Trofie al pesto is a very Genovese Ligurian dish, but in Portofino, which is a small little bay on the Ligurian coast in Italy, about half an hour from Genoa, the city itself, they do a thing called lasagna al pesto. And I want to explain that before you start thinking of lasagna with meat and everything like that, it's not like that. Lasagna is actually a type of pasta. It's just a flat pasta. So they put like two 
or sometimes three sheets, like squares of pasta on top of each other, layered up, and then they just pour this incredible pesto. And when I say incredible pesto, I mean because the pesto that we get in England is wonderful, but it's not this. Actually, the pesto you get in most of Italy isn't this, because the basil that grows in Liguria is quintessentially Ligurian basil, which is where pesto comes from. And the whole reason for it being amazing is because that region of Italy is quite unique in the sense that it's very steep mountains against the sea. It does something magic to the soil, and therefore the basil in that part of Italy, in that part of the world, tastes incredible. So the smell of that being prepared, the smell of literally the basil being in the pesto mortar. I remember my aunt's house. I used to go to my aunt's house as a kid. She had this beautiful villa on, on top of the mountain in Portofino. And her and her friends would sort of be sitting there on a Sunday, like already at like nine o'clock in the morning, just preparing the Sunday lunch and, and doing this and prepare. And you could smell the basil throughout the whole house. And so that smell just takes me straight back. And still now when I get to Portofino, if you do have a chance to go to Portofino, your nose will pick up on it very quickly as you walk by every restaurant because it's kind of the dish of Portofino. Oh, as you were describing that, I felt like I was sort of instantly transported to the Italian Riviera. Is it true that with the Ligurian pesto, I think, is it like 30 basil leaves per garlic clove, I think? Like it's an art as well as a science. It is. And it's also, though, very intuitive. I mean, I'm sure there are numbers but I can guarantee you when my aunt and my grandmother used to do it, it was just like grabbing it, like just ripping it out. They just know it's in them. They just know. They also soak the basil in water for quite a long time. A lot of people do that before they use it because it brings out more of the flavor. They literally leave it to stay in these kind of buckets of water. I'm assuming that brings out the flavor. Maybe that also helps with the greenness. I think maybe that keeps it really bright. That's very true as well. You don't get the brown effect. So. You've said before that you fell in love with cooking at quite a young age. I think it was as a teenager, 14, 15. And your love for food started at around the same time as your love for music. And you said something which I thought was really interesting. You said that food and music are both things that as a teenager can give you a real sense of control and can form a really large part of your identity. And I thought that was a really interesting parallel to make and kind of amazing that you discovered those two things in tandem. Well, they're a language in itself. They're a way of communicating with people that you might not necessarily be able to communicate with. They give you a certain sense of independence. Like anything, like when you learn a new language, you definitely gain a confidence and an independence that you didn't have prior to learning it. And I think cooking definitely does that. It also has the same element of making something out of nothing. There is this sense where you can get your creativity involved. You can benefit it from it yourself, but you can also share with others. And I love that element of two birds with one stones coming from the creative process of making something. And I think food and music have a lot in common when it comes to that. It must have given you such a big sense of confidence. Like, were you confident as a child? No, I was quiet. I mean, there were certain elements of confidence because I always valued confidence, put it that way. I grew up with very confident parents, even though we had a lot of situations in our household, divorces and quite complex relationships within our family in general. Everybody was very confident with their decision-making, even though the decision-making might have not always been of the best standards. They were confident in their decision-making. And there was a lot to be said for that because, you know, there's nothing worse than watching somebody make a bad decision that they're insecure about. At least be confident about it. At least own it if you're going to make a terrible decision. I'd rather you owned it. But I was quiet. I wasn't very good at communicating, which is now funny because that's what I do for a living. And it's what I love doing for a living. 
and it's what I love doing in general, not only for a living. I love the art of communication. And I think, going back to what you were saying before, that's where my curiosity with food and music came from because it was the first time I could communicate without necessarily having to talk too much. And by doing those two things, by cooking and music, I learned how to talk. I learned how to express myself, to be more confident with my expression, and also to value it, to give it more value. Like I said before, it would really benefit me, but I saw it benefiting others. I remember songwriting was something I used to do when my mother was having a very tough time in her life. And my coping mechanism was to go in the kitchen and kind of play her a song when I was very young. And at first I was doing it for me, but I remember realizing very quickly that when I did that, she would really benefit from it. She would change, her whole face expression would change and tears would turn into laughter and food had the same effect. It does that. There's nothing better to fix a quarrel at home than to cook a good meal. It's very good. So true. A makeup meal. (laughs) But that's an amazing lesson to learn so early on. And it's sort of describing that. It's really no wonder that you then went on to want to become a professional musician and and make that part of your life. Because if you have the ability to have that effect on someone, that's an amazing thing. It's very overwhelming in a wonderful way. It's like when you make somebody laugh unintentionally. You know, one thing is telling a joke, but when you just say something and you make somebody laugh and they see the layers of what you're saying, it's a real moment of magic. It's a real moment of connectivity that you can't take for granted. And cooking, I mean, I started in the kitchen before I ever went into a studio. My first job was in a kitchen. So I I always looked for this. I looked to turn it into something I could also pay my bills with. From a very young age, I realized this is the only thing I like doing and know how to do. I might as well try and try and make some money from it and and be able to live off of it. I'm going to do it anyway. I might as well figure out a way that I can live off of it. Mm. Well, that brings us on very nicely, as if planned, to the second Desert Island dish. And that is the first dish that you learned to cook. It's still my kind of go-to dish, which is a matriciana. It's a spaghetti la matriciana, which is a very Roman dish, which is basically done with guanciale, you can do it with bacon and pancetta if you don't. I mean, you don't have to be a real snob about it. I mean, you should preferably do it with guanciale. And in Rome, they would do it with guanciale. Tomatoes, there's a bit garlic. Some people throw onion. Apparently, it's sacrilegious to do that. But that was the first dish I'd... It's still my go-to. It's my sort of hangover cure. There's everything you want in there. There's, there's grease from the guanciale, and there's also the goodness of a good tomato sauce. So you feel like it's kind of doing two things at once. And pecorino cheese. You must put pecorino. Sorry. God forbid it's Parmesan. The Romans will get very upset. It has to be pecorino. (laughs) Was there someone in particular that taught you that? Or when you were a teenager, how were you acquiring your cooking knowledge? Well, it was actually a dish my mom learned how to do and got really proud, but she used to do it really badly. And I hope she's not going to listen to this. <laughs> because I remember she was so proud of her pasta la matriciana. And I remember being like, mm, I'm not sure this is exactly how it should be. And so we got in an argument one night, a very amicable argument about it. And so I said, okay, I'm going to show you how it's done. And I did it and nailed it. It came out of my arrogance of arguing with my mother about how to do it properly. But it was actually her dish, bless her heart. It was her sort of pride and glory. And I've, I've kind of stolen it. And now my wife has just taken it to a whole new level, which is kind of funny because I, my wife is English. And when I met her, she was cooking, but not, not all this Italian food. And now she completely outdoes me whenever she takes on any sort of quintessential Italian dish. She takes it to another level. 
Oh, amazing. And you, you mentioned that your mother wasn't that interested in cooking, although she is now. But I mean, she sounds like an amazing woman. She was really part of the 60s London scene. I've read that she was rubbing shoulders with Marvin Gaye and Jimi Hendrix. And from what I understand, she was very much encouraging you to put your poetry to music when you're 15 and sort of generally allowing you to be exactly who you wanted. So it sounds like she was a big inspiration in what you're doing today. 100%. I mean, like I said before, one of the reasons I first really started singing was to kind of connect to my mother at a time when I saw her going through tremendous difficulties on a personal level. But she always had, again, this confidence Maybe a bit of naiveness, but this confidence of just saying, if you want to do something, go do it, but do it well and don't give up. The only time she would ever call me out on something wasn't if I did it badly or if I did it wrong, was if I was giving up. That's where she would sort of say, no, get back up, try harder. I remember once actually her telling me at the beginning of my music career when things were difficult, she said to me, you always quit when things get hard. <laughs> and it really threw me because my mother has always kind of thought that I was the messiah and could walk on water. I've had a very fortunate upbringing that my mother was always very complimentary, probably even when she shouldn't have been, always believed in her children. But that was the one time she really said something that made me think, oh, wow, because I know how much she values not quitting, not giving up on things, on life in general. So, yeah, she's definitely been a huge reason for me doing what I do and having the, I don't have the courage or, again, even my own naiveness, to say at a very young age, I want to make music, I want to write songs. More than make music, I want to write songs. Songs was what I was doing this for more than music. But yeah, she always had those stories of saying, you know, I remember being at a party and there was an American kid with long hair in the corner that we all sat and listened to. And I found out late, years later it was James Taylor. Or she was going on holiday to the south of France with Keith Richard and he wouldn't leave his bedroom because he was shy and he would just sit in his bedroom in the hotel playing guitar all night. So she had all these amazing stories. And she also normalized these characters. So it never felt like what I was choosing to do was that audacious or far out. Mm, that's such a good point, isn't it? Because if you don't have someone who's sort of got that insider knowledge and can tell you that these are just normal people like you, you can kind of think that it's such an outrageous dream that you could never achieve that. But I think that's such an amazing gift to give your child. Yeah, accessibility is kind of half the battle with most things in life. You know, thinking that you deserve a place or you have the opportunity to do it or you're given the opportunity by society in general. If you've got the luxury or the fortune to have certain opportunities, it's good that your parents sort of make you realize that, not to turn a blind eye to it. Absolutely. And was music a really big part of your childhood? Like, were your parents musical? Because those years are so formative. I just wondered how much of an impact that had on what you're doing now. They were incredibly musical, but not musicians. And that's how I see myself. I, I mean, I always say I work with musicians. I am not a musician. I'm very musical. I like to use music to express myself, to tell a story, but I have no idea how it works. And I can say that because I work with people that do. And there's a big difference. So my parents were like myself. They were incredibly musical. There was music on in our house all the time. There still is. If I go to my mother's house, she's got the radio on. If I go, well, unfortunately, my dad passed away. But with my dad, most of our time spent together was spent, if not talking about music, listening to music. So, yeah, they were incredibly musical. I wonder if you'd have grown up in a non-musical house, would it still have been something that was within you? 
I don't think so. The great lesson that music taught me was its kind of power, its strength that it had over people. Like I always sort of tell this story that when I really realized the value of music, very much watching my father. My father, when I was growing up, was a mountain of a man. And, you know, like most sons and fathers, you kind of look up to them in a, in a way you won't look up towards anyone. I don't think, you know, it's rare that you'll find someone to replace your father. And I remember seeing him living in London in the 80s when I was a kid as an immigrant. And however much of a front he would put on that he was okay, he would every now and then sit in the living room listening to Italian music and he would sit down and it would really knock the wind out of his sails. I could see tears in his eyes. I could see him getting choked up. Or he would say to me, come and listen to this, listen to this lyric, listen to this line. He would suddenly be sort of reduced to this, I don't know, incredibly vulnerable man. And I remember thinking, wow, music is doing this. <laughs> and that was a real element that later on in life, I'm pretty sure, I don't know, I probably need to go to therapy to figure this out, but I'm pretty sure when my father left, I used it to kind of get his attention and also to put him in his place. I knew this was a way I could hold my own in a way. And I knew that it was a craft. It is kind of this dark craft sometimes where you can, through poetry and music and melody, it's amazing what you can do to somebody physically far stronger than you. You can really put them in their place. And that was something that I think I only learned because of my consequences and how my father and my mother looked at music. I realized it was a way that I could get their attention, not in the sense of like, look at me, look at me, but in the sense of they respected it. They had a tremendous respect for music. So if I said what I had to say through music, it was a lot more likely that they would listen than if I just sat there saying how I felt. Yeah, how powerful. You studied film for a time, but I believe you dropped out of university after three months without telling your family. And I wondered, how did that go? When did you tell them? And what was your plan at that time? It was a very short time. When you said, to say I studied, it was a big word. Okay. It, was, it is what I wanted to do. I, I, had, I had gotten into a really good school in San Francisco to study film. And then I went to LA for a few months beforehand to make some money before going to university. But it was during 9-11. It was, America was in a strange place, so I didn't like it. So I came back to London. I went to an American university in London. And one semester in, not even, I was like, yeah, this isn't... Every night I was coming home and writing songs. And I thought, this is silly. What am I doing? Like, if I'm going to put my time and energy... I think it was a Jim Carrey thing I saw. If you're going to fail, fail at something you love. And I was fascinated with filmmaking, but I wasn't crazy about it. It wasn't running through my veins like music was. Music, every time I came home, I wanted to write a song. And so I didn't know that this world existed, you know. I grew up in Switzerland. I grew up on top of a mountain in a very privileged environment, beautiful, very, you know, surrounded by nature and surrounded by a very international group of friends, predominantly American friends. But we didn't grow up in a city where you understood about the art world, the music business, the film business, the fashion. All that world was something like so far out from what we grew up with that I didn't even know that what I wanted to do was a career or was a thing. Didn't know where these musician guys came from or where these bands came from. I just, it wasn't something I, I knew. And when I moved to London, I remember meeting all these amazing people that were, you know, you'd ask what they did and they were like, I'm a poet. And it was like, Really? Like, that's what you can do? Or I'm a graffiti artist. And, you know, these people that were just sort of doing these professions or choosing these paths that I didn't know were an option. So I was like, okay, well, I'm a singer-songwriter. 
And suddenly, <laughs> the louder I said it, the more I sort of became it. Yeah, those are things that the career coach at school definitely doesn't talk about enough. And I think interesting what you said about deciding that film wasn't for you, because I think at that early stage, it's often as important to find out what you don't want to do as what you do want to do. Because until you try something, how can you possibly know? And, and so often that does then push you into finding the thing that you are meant to do. 100%. And I think failure is essential for that. And I, I sort of always joke with my kids. I say, whatever you want to do today, be the first one to fail. Because that's when you know if you really want to do it, and if you're really capable of putting in the time to get really good at doing it. I never trust somebody who hasn't failed. <laughs> I'm a bit wary. Like, I want to know that they can cope with it, <laughs> that they can come back from it, or, or that they really mean what they're doing. And I have definitely failed enough in my life to know that I do what I do because I have to. Me too, Jack. Me too. <laughs> so, Jack, let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish, and that is the best dish you've ever eaten. I don't want to let you down with this because it's very unsophisticated and, <laughs> and I don't know if this really goes with your show, but um, I'm a real sucker for a double, double animal style cheeseburger in and out which is a fast food chain, only in the state of California, although I think they've opened one in Vegas now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what In-N-Out is? I haven't had one, but I know what you're talking about, yes. So I'm really sorry to say this after talking about the Italian Riviera and Roman cooking. I mean, my grandmother is rolling in her grave as I say this. I love that you said that because I read it in an interview where you said that that was probably going to be your final meal on earth. So I was waiting to see whether that was what you were going to choose. No, we're not discerning on this podcast. Like food, food is food. And food if you food. love something, Amen. yeah, if you love something, that is a good enough reason for us to talk about it. And um, But yeah, it did, it did make me laugh. It's real love. It's, a, it's almost obsessive. Like I will arrive, every time I arrive in LA, one of my best childhood friends, Leron, picks me up and he doesn't even ask. Like we'll be talking in the car and he'll just pull into the first in and out. There's one by the airport. He won't even ask me. He just knows that after I've come off a 14-hour flight or whatever, 11-hour flight, and I've actually had it twice in a day. I've done lunch and dinner. I know this is... I've never done that with anything. Like, I'm not really an addictive character. I'm more, like I said, codependent than addictive when it comes to my personality trait. But I'm very dependent on in and out And you have to get it double-double animal style. Sounds aggressive, but I promise you... Okay, what does that animal style mean? <laughs> uh, it just means everything on it but it, it actually is a very elegant cheeseburger i can't explain it okay you don't have to defend it jack you don't have to defend it i know i feel like i'm defending myself no the fact that you had it <laughs> twice in a day that's true love and it's true love all the better for it i hope you don't mind me saying this next bit but i really loved reading about your career and i found it so relatable in that it wasn't an overnight thing you found your passion, you knew music was what you wanted to do, but it's not like it happened instantly or easily. It was your sixth and seventh album that really caught fire in the public consciousness. And they both hit number one in the UK. And you say, looking back, that you're confused as to why you never gave up. What was it in you that just made you keep going? Well, the older I get, the more I realize it was people. It wasn't the music. I mean, the music was going to be there, whether or not I did it as a career or whether or not I tried to make a living out of it, music wasn't going to go away. And I remember kind of figuring that out on my third album. It was an album called Before the Storm. Just before I wrote that album, I was really done. I'd really seen a lot of bad and a lot of ugly 
of the music industry. And I really didn't have much respect for the industry as a whole because it really annoyed me that the industry could decide whether you did something or not. And that was something I just couldn't digest, something I loved to do. It wasn't whether I was up for it or good enough or willing to work for it. It was just whether somebody picked you or not. And this was a different time. This was a lot before the technology we have today. So, you know, MySpace was revolutionary, but it was still very much like either that record label signs you or you don't stand a chance. And I wasn't being invited to the party at all. And that was really frustrating me. And so I decided to sort of start my own party. And I invited everybody I invited to my party had nothing to do with the music industry. And that's when things started to work. <laughs> the minute I stopped sort of depending on something I didn't really want to depend on and started actually choosing people because I thought they were great people and I knew that they could help me because they shared my passion or my drive or my ideas. And that's when I fell in love with the business side of music because it's a bit of an oxymoron music business <laughs> but now if i wanted to just do this and not have to do something else in my life you know i had a little girl on the way i just got married i suddenly the responsibilities of life were far greater than just what does jack want to do <laughs> what do i want to do that sort of fell very low on my list of priorities so i started having to tick other boxes in other ways and i realized that the only way i was going to be able to do that and still do music was by understanding the business side of it. And to me, business is just sometimes a dirty word for people. I think it's all about building people, building a team, building something that you can do together with people. And rather than look at it as this dirty word, it actually became a real community and to some extent, a sort of enlarged part of my family. And all of the people that I chose back then are still with me today. And it's a family, it's a team, it's a business that keeps growing. Oh, that's amazing. I love that you sort of overcame the gatekeepers and did it your own way. And now you're having the last laugh. <laughs> well, I think they're fine. <laughs> they, they're, they're fine without me. No, they must rue the day. <laughs> they will rue the day they didn't give you a chance. Well, no, I, it's a weird one because I've met a lot of people later on in my career that did slam the door in my face. And all of them have been incredible when I meet them later down the line. And a lot of people with a lot of knowledge say, you're welcome because you wouldn't have had the career you had had we picked you up back then. You weren't ready. And I wasn't ready. I don't know who I thought I was thinking I was ready. And at the same time, I've seen a lot of young artists come to the party at a young age and be eaten alive because they're not ready or they've got a particular talent or a particular song or a particular look or a particular sound. But everything else, they haven't really figured out yet. And so everybody else starts telling them how to do it or who they are or what they want. And that's a struggle in its own way. And I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I kind of, due to my lack of success at the beginning, I had time. I had time to really figure out, do I really want to do this? And who do I want to do it with? Because that's a luxury in this game. Because if it all happens quick and you don't know who you're working with, poof, there's a lot of sharks out there and there's a lot of, bad decisions that can be made in that situation. So I, I feel very fortunate. I feel a lucky man. <laughs> there must have been incredibly hard moments at the time. And and now that we're able to say with hindsight, sitting here today, and you're obviously a huge success. So it's it's sort of easy to say that it happened in the best possible way, but it, it kind of sounds like it did. It's funny because when I wanted to quit the music business after my second album, I really was out. I had phoned friends saying... Do you need me to come to your office and make coffee? What do you got? I'll do anything. Like I asked friends from all corners of life 
if they had something that they could help me with because I, I didn't know how to do anything else. I had spent my first sort of seven years of my 20s only doing this. So I wasn't equipped to do anything else. And it was only when I tried to walk away from it that I ended up, funnily enough, writing the album called Before the Storm. And it's funny because there was so much about that title, Before the Storm, that was so accurate. Because, like I said, I had a daughter arriving. My life was about to change drastically in ways I couldn't have ever imagined. But also, I had decided to set sail against the storm that is the industry. I really took it on, not by myself, with amazing people around me, my managers in particular, who are still with me today. And we really set off the three of us and just said, game on, let's do this. And suddenly when the storm did finish, we came out feeling pretty good about ourselves. We, we kind of survived and we thought, well, it can't get worse than that. <laughs> so, so let's just enjoy the rest. It's not like we came across the Garden of Eden, but we found some pretty cool islands on our journeys and met some amazing people along the way. I love that. I love, these are my favorite kinds of stories. Like, I don't want to know about someone who just got lucky and it happened overnight. I want to hear about really passionate people who make it happen. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. Jack Savaretti, what is your favorite sandwich? My favorite sandwich is from a local deli near where I live. And now this is my Jewish and Italian blood coming together. So pastrami sandwiches are a big talking point in my household. <laughs> and there's an amazing deli called Quince and Clover. Quince and Clover is this incredible deli in a little town called Great Chew in Oxfordshire. And boy, oh boy, do they know how to make a pastrami sandwich. What's the secret to their pastrami sandwich? Why is it so good? I don't know. I'd love to know the secret. I mean, the choice of the pickle <laughs> is important. The mustard they use, they do some sort of special mixture of mustard and is it dill or dal? I'm always wrong on how I say that. Dill. Dill. And also they kind of, this is going to sound controversial, but they use a brioche bun, but it works. I don't know how, but it, it just works. It just, that, I was going to swear there. Actually, That melts in your mouth. It melts in your mouth. It's amazing. <laughs> I could, yeah, I could definitely get on board with a brioche. I don't think I'd ever be cross about a brioche bun. I know, right? Uh, there, there's very few situations where I'd be like, no, I'm not having this. Yeah. <laughs> but the first time they made it for me, the first time they gave it to me, I was like, what's this? Because my biggest fear is going back to sort of the great cheeseburger from in and out is the simplicity of it. And there's nothing I hate worse than a sort of a glamorous pub burger on like really thick meat. And then they put like pesto on it on focaccia bread or something or something like that. That to me is just like, I can't, I, I can't get behind that. So when I saw this with the brioche bun, I was like, don't tell me this is some gastro pub stuff. And actually, no, it's legit. I like how the beginning of that story started with you saying it was my biggest fear. <laughs> I thought something like really profound was coming and then we talked about sandwiches. I think the fear of brioche buns is a very profound. <laughs> that's real right there. That's that's. <laughs> Jack, you have now performed at a sold out Wembley. I mean, there aren't that many people in the world that can say that. Please, can you tell us what is it like when you're standing on stage? What does that feel like? It was amazing because I wasn't sure we belonged there when we walked out. And then it was funny, like the first note we hit, the way the crowd reacted, I remember thinking, no, we do. This is cool. We do belong here. This is going to be a special night. It was kind of weird because after we played Wembley Arena, the lockdown happened. So it kind of felt there was a moment in the first lockdown where I thought, was that the end of our story? 
Like, was that the grand finale? Like, where do we go from there? But fortunately, it wasn't. It felt like the ending of a chapter, for sure. But it definitely wasn't the ending of the whole story. And do you get nervous before something like that? Or is it excitement? Is it nerves? Like, what are, what are you feeling in that moment? I mean, it's a combination. The excitement is what makes you nervous because you kind of want to control that excitement so that you don't go out there and just go, ah! <laughs> you have to be cool, get the job done. You have to play well. You have to sing well. You have to give what the people paid for. These are people that have traveled from all over the world a lot of the times to come and see you for two hours, do your thing, and get the job done. And so you don't want to just be out there going, oh, wow, this is great. you got to be professional. So I think that's where the nerves kick in. It was a really magical night for many reasons. My kids were there. My my mother, my father were there. My wife was there. And they were all in the same crowd. And it was just amazing because we had Ward Thomas, these two amazing sisters, uh, join us on stage. But we also had Lissy opening up for us. And Lissy is one of my favorite singers. And there was a great community of musicians. And it was funny because Lissy opened up. And I, I went to see on the side of the stage. And my kids were up in the stands. And my son, who at the time was like four, was just like chin on the railings. He had never seen anything like this at four years old. And so I was so excited. And I remember walking out on stage for our first song, looking up at my kids. And my son was just passed out. Oh, no. <laughs> just like, <laughs> he was completely like sort of head to the sky, drooling on his mother. And my daughter, though, was my daughter was following every word. And she was amazing. It was a very emotional, it was a very emotional night. It was definitely one of the highlights of my careers, for sure. Yeah, that's incredible. What an amazing moment. I have to ask, because it's something that I always think about, do you have a rider? And if you do, I don't feel like you'd be asking for like Monster Oh, maybe you are with the In-N-Out Burgers, but are you a Maltesers Monster Munch kind of guy or what are you asking for? I'm definitely entering the sort of middle-aged man rider of like ginger. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, we, we, we've always been a sort of, we always ask for Italian ham, Italian wine. We've taken all the fun stuff off the rider because we were killing ourselves. There was a time where it was Jameson whiskey and bottles of vodka and gin. Now, if I look back on it, actually, we did look back on it recently. We found a rider from like seven years ago and we were all just sort of like, whoa, whoa, how did we do that every night? How did we? Also, our responsibilities have changed. We used to be playing to like smaller crowds. We weren't making any money. We were doing it just for the love. Now people are traveling, like I said, from all over the world. We have a responsibility to put on a show. You got to be ready to go out there. You don't want to be drunk going on stage. Like, I couldn't explain that to myself now. You know, 10 years ago, I could easily do that. But now I could never allow myself to go on stage, not at least in the best possible form that I can, especially after COVID. I think our appreciation after lockdown for audiences and for our fans, it was there before, but it's just different level now because you really realize how volatile and how delicate this is. It was a good lesson. It was a good sort of reminder of how lucky we are to do what we do. And the only reason we get to do what we do is thanks to the people that buy tickets and come to our shows. So having too much fun before you go on stage is, is not an option anymore. So our rider is incredibly healthy. Sounds healthy, but delicious. It is. It is. We got good stuff. Let's pause there and talk about the fifth Desert Island dish. And that is the dish you eat the most often. Can I kind of play on this one? Because it's a dish I eat the most often when I go to a certain place, if that makes sense. Because I don't know if I have any sort of dish that I eat most often 
other than really mundane, like tomato pasta, which is probably the most, my go-to sort of at least twice a week I have that. But when I go to Portofino, going back to Portofino, the place of my childhood, of my sort of family, whether every stone on it runs through my DNA, is octopus salad. There's a thing called insalata di polpo, which is a very Ligurian thing. And there's, in, there's octopus salads all over the Mediterranean, but the Ligurian one in particular is just super simple. It's just octopus, potatoes, parsley, olive oil, and a bit of lemon. And it is off the chart. And when I'm there, again, it's a bit of a disease. Like I'll, I'll eat at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's an antipasto. It's not, it's not a main. It's a small dish, but it's something that I will have. Definitely lunch and dinner. I haven't done it at breakfast just yet. I have it every single time I'm there. And a lot of the restaurants are really good friends of mine. I grew up with them. And every time they're like, really? We've got this new thing on the menu. And I'm like, no, <laughs> octopus salad. <It's, laughs> if it ain't broken, don't fix it. That sounds like a challenge. I think next time you're there, you need to have it for breakfast and see how you get on. <laughs> I could, because it is. It, I mean, I, I know some people, it makes them squint when you say octopus salad but it's delicious. I got my kids to have it uh, last time, which was a real, you know, there's some of those dishes that you grow up with that you know are a little bit quaint. And so when your kids eat them, you get this real sense of pride. I don't know. It was really weird. It was like I was watching them go off to college. I almost had a tear in my eyes. I watched them eat their octopus salad and, and love it more to the point. They, they loved it. Yeah, you can't really describe that feeling because it is such a particular thing and why it's so important to you. But yeah, I can completely relate to that. So of your songwriting process, you have said that you never write before lunch. You say songwriting on an empty stomach just doesn't work. And so if I write alone or if I write with someone, it's always consequent to lunch. And that's interesting. Talk to me about that. Well, fundamentally, that's about connection. I think people don't connect well on an empty stomach. It's not their true selves. If somebody's hungry, you're not going to get their true self. But jokes aside, it's also getting to know someone a lot of the times you're writing with somebody you haven't seen for a while or sometimes you're writing with somebody you've never met before and i can never do that go into a studio and let's write a song i don't know who you are I, you don't know who i am so let's go and have a, a meal so it's not necessarily about the food per se i don't know what the science is behind it but if the food is good you won't have a bad conversation and so that's kind of how we always like to start it and then I always feel like you go back to the studio and almost always you write about what you spoke about while you were eating. Almost always. So I like that. It's a more genuine way of everybody letting go of their guard and being a little bit more intimate without the intensity of the unknown. I don't know you, you don't know me, but let's write a song about something traumatic that's happened to you. I don't like that. Yeah. How can you possibly do that with a stranger that you've only just met that I never thought about that before? But yeah, that's a big, that's a big ask, but it makes total sense. I think I'd be more keen to go to therapy if I knew that I could go to lunch with my therapist <laughs> rather than sit down in an office. That to me sounds like hell, but I, if I could go for lunch with my therapist or for dinner, then I think I'd enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. If there are any therapists listening, that's a good business model, I think. <laughs> food therapy, I think so. Yeah, food therapy. Hmm. Let's trademark that ASAP. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish. And that is your go-to dinner party dish. My go-to dinner party dish is this lamb shoulder that a friend of mine taught me who was an amazing guitarist. And he's an amazing chef, actually, now in Denmark, in Copenhagen. He has his own TV show. He's called Nikolai Jewel. 
and he's an amazing guitarist, but he's also an incredible chef. He learned his trade through Jamie Oliver. He taught me this, I don't want to say trick, but this way of cooking a lamb shoulder, a leg of lamb, actually, which has just been amazing. has been this kind of success to me, which was, the technical term isn't stab it, but you basically create holes throughout it on the meat side rather than the bone side. And you put an anchovy, clove of garlic, mint, rosemary, and then you repeat that. Anchovy, clove of garlic, mint, rosemary. And it looks fantastic because it's got these beautiful rosemary sort of trees sticking out of it. But the anchovies and the garlic melt while you slow cook it over the space of four to six hours, depending on how you want to do it. And it creates this incredible buttery. The meat is just melts off the bone, as the expression says. So that's always kind of something that we do at dinner parties because it's just really easy. You don't have to fuff around while you've got people there. You can kind of put it in and when it's ready and then you can serve that with couscous or you can serve that with potatoes i like to do my potatoes chop them super fine almost where they're like crisps and just cover them in oil and rosemary and salt so they literally come out like an oven tray comes out filled with i mean it's quite it's something my grandmother used to do actually and they were almost like little crisps they're a little bit thicker but they're just super simple olive oil and rosemary on the same pan as the lamb separate but underneath it and oh, another thing with the lamb, which was another trick or something that he showed me, was once you've done all, all that kerfuffle, you basically put it on your oven tray, you create a vegetable grill. So you use celery, carrots, and onion, and you literally build like a little grill on your oven tray, which you put the lamb on. So all the water from the vegetables comes into the lamb, keeps it nice and moist. But also at the same time, you're making your gravy because all the juices from the lamb drip into the tray with the vegetable stock, so to speak, and it creates this really lovely sauce a lovely gravy why did we record this in the morning i'm absolutely <laughs> starving at the thought of how you've described that do you often get to do dinner parties is that a part of your everyday life not every day but part of life not every day but every week it's kind of especially since moving out of the city and living in the countryside that's what I love most about living in the countryside, actually, because I remember living in the city. I would see like really good friends of mine twice a year, but I would see them for sort of like an hour and then everybody's running off to something else. So it's always a little bit hectic. I never felt like I could really see people. Whereas what I love about living in the countryside is people sort of come over for lunch and leave at midnight <laughs> and you, you really get that sort of quality time. Everything's just a bit slower. It's strange, like in a good way. Time slows down, life slows down. So dinner parties are a big factor here. There are some great restaurants and more and more opening around where I live, but you can't really be a sort of countryside dinner party where people make a real effort here too with dinner parties, which is something I really like. Like they get dressed up and I really like that. That was quite new to me when I moved out to the Cotswolds that you go to a dinner party and people are dressed to the night. Like it's a real thing. That might also be like an age thing. I don't know if it's necessarily a Cotswolds thing. I think dinner parties had a bad moment where people weren't really into them. And I think they're making a comeback. And I think that's a good thing. I totally agree. We have a cookbook corner on Desert Island Dishes. And I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? My most treasured cookbook is probably, well, more than mine, my households. We're big on the Ottolenghi world, but I would also love to give a huge shout out to Sophie Ellis-Bexter's cookbook because I love what her and Richard have done. What they've done together is awesome. Um, and I love the sort of the accessibility, but the fact that they cook together. And I think that's really nice. I think they've tapped into something really interesting there. Yeah, I completely agree. And Jack, you're about to go back on tour. Never ending. 
when you say go back on tour, we're about to play some shows again. It never stops. It never stops. Except for it took a global pandemic to stop us from touring. And even then, we managed to sort of get some shows in here and there, wherever we could. We're going to be doing a bunch of shows this summer. Do you feel like Europeana is your best work to date? I mean, maybe it always feels like whatever your latest project is inevitably your best work. But do you have a strong feeling of that? I feel like the last two albums, Singing to Strangers and Europeana, opened up a world that was inside of me but i don't know if i was ashamed of it or not but it was just something that i i never really let out as much because it was a lot of music that i grew up with that i didn't associate with music that people would want to hear outside of italy or outside of europe which was a lot of french italian spanish music that i grew up listening to and i only sort of had the courage to start letting that really influence my way of making music on the album prior to Europeana, which was called Singing to Strangers, which I actually chose to record it in Rome. And then Europeana came up during COVID where we were in lockdown and we couldn't travel. And I had that real necessity for travel. So I started playing all this music in our house that kind of gave me that escapism and reminded me of the Mediterranean and the Alps and Europe, you know, which is where I grew up. And it was only listening to that music that I realized well, actually, this thing that I've tapped into in myself about this music, this is actually a thing. It's kind of a genre that nobody speaks about, this European music. So it kind of came on a play of words of everybody talks about Americana and nobody talks about Europeana. And there is this real link. And you can link from Sarge Gansberg to Julio Iglesias to Georgia Moroder and Daft Punk. You can connect these two well. Like, there is something that connects this European music, which is melody, melancholy, and the ability of storytelling through lyrics. And it's a quintessentially European craft, the way it's done. And I just wanted to make an album that celebrated that. And now it's really fun when we go out live and play. We really see that people come with that mentality. Like, they almost get dressed up as well to come to our shows. Like, it's almost as if they're having a night abroad. Like, as if they're sort of going on somewhere. They're, they're traveling Actually, a wonderful story at one of our shows. We had a lot of proposals. Really? Like wedding proposals, either before the show or after the show or during the show even. And I asked one of the guys during the show, why here? Why now? I ask all of them when they do it. And most of the time, it's because this is his favorite song or this is her favorite song. Or But one time, one guy goes, because I couldn't afford to take it to Rome. And I thought that was such a great answer. I was like, I guess we're the next best thing. Yeah, that's amazing. That's when I also realized, okay, well, that's also what we do here. We're, we're creating this world that people can come and, you know, if you can't go to Rome, come to one of our shows. Yeah, well, that's the power of music, isn't it? And it's the same, the same applies to food. I think they're both such powerful mediums that can transport you somewhere else, which is pretty amazing. Well, exactly. If I'm feeling melancholic for Italy, I go to eat a nice Italian meal somewhere. If I go to an Italian restaurant, I'm home. I found this amazing Italian deli near Maidenhead off the M4, just called Italian Food Shop. It's massive, but it's the real deal. It's legit. It's not some deli with overpriced Italian biscuits charged for 20 pounds. No, this is real Italian prices and real Italian product. And I walked in there and they had the Italian radio playing. They had Italian TV on. You know, it was the next best thing. So I like that our shows feel a bit like that, that it's that kind of escapism that you sometimes crave. Right, Jack, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? 
Can I repeat what the dishes? <laughs> yes, of course you can. You're going to guess what it is. I'm going to have to sort of tumble dry my grandmother's grave because of what I'm saying. But it's definitely the in and out double double animal style. If that was my final wish, I know it would really fill me up too. I'd, I'd survive a few more days than if I had anything else. You're allowed. I, I just love that that is your choice. I love that. Are you allowed a pudding? Would you like a pudding? Ooh, okay. Well, now now you're making it interesting because the pudding wouldn't really have anything to do with that meal. But that's fine. Then I'd have to go with some real homemade tiramisu. Actually, well, yeah, there was a, there was a wonderful restaurant in a little village called Corona in this Switzerland, and I used to hate tiramisu growing up. And there was this wonderful restaurant owned by these two twin sisters. We used to go there all the time because it was a village where I lived for a bit in Switzerland. And she said to me. You're having a homemade tiramisu. And it was just the fact that she said homemade that I couldn't say no. Had she said we're having tiramisu, but because she said homemade, I, I didn't want to be rude. So I was like, okay. And my life has never been the same ever since that day. <laughs> I saw the light. I definitely saw the light of the tiramisu light. I'm with you there. I think if you have a bad one early on where something about the sponge fingers, like I don't know if it's too alcoholic, it can just push you the wrong way. Exactly. Is there too much alcohol when you're a kid can scare you later on in life? I recently rediscovered them and now I'm tiramisu obsessed. So good. Jack, thank you so, so much for letting us hear your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much for having me. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, as lots of you have been doing, which is amazing. So I thought I would read out our first review of the week. And this week's review of the week comes from The Mindful Walker. And they said, I love listening to this podcast on my morning walk, hearing about an individual story, but also how they've been shaped by food. Not going to lie, every episode makes me further develop my own answers. So happy I found this podcast. Oh, we're so happy you found this podcast too, The Mindful Walker. Thank you so much. How nice is that? If you want a chance to have your review read out, then you know what to do. If you don't already, come and follow us on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. You can sign up for the newsletter on our website and find a whole host of different recipes. That's desertislanddishes.co. Thank you again to Lloyd's Bank, our sponsor for this season of Desert Island Dishes. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.